And thank you for the opening meditation, Brother Michael, to meditate on on the return of the Lord and being ready for him and what for effect we can have. Also, the children's lesson, I must confess, I didn't know where Ben was going to go with this. I really didn't know, but uh, it came out at a good place. <laughs> and I hope I can too. <laughs> so... If you can, why don't we stand for a word of prayer? Lord, we are grateful to you. You have been so good to us. Lord Jesus, coming on earth, coming amongst men, instructing men, instructing us, Lord. And it's been given to us so we can look into your word and we can learn. And then, Lord, you went on to the cross, and then you went on, Lord, to the uh, death and then the resurrection, and now you are in heaven, and someday you will be coming back again. And that is a reality. You had told us ahead of time, and, and we are in that sense without excuse because you had given us an open book test. You have a, It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of Loyalty, it's a matter of confidence where we will put our confidence and trust and loyalty in. So we thank you, Lord, this morning for uh, giving us your word. And I pray, Lord, as we continue on, that you would instruct us. Give us what we need, that we would be uh, of those wise, wise virgins, that we would be of those good and faithful servants, and that we, Lord, but also be of the sheep. All three of them, Lord, it's a blessing as to how your people are. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us this morning. Be with each one of us to give us an attentive heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm also going to look at the teachings of Jesus this morning in Matthew. And I'm going to focus on one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.13. Many of you can probably quote it by heart. But there's a lot in one verse. Matthew 5.13, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Sermon on the Mount. Here is the first negative statement in this sermon. This point From the beginning, it's been blessed, 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 rejoice. Now, obviously, rejoicing in persecution, you could call that negative. But it was all giving direction. This is who the people of God are. This is what they should pursue. This is their character. And in verse 13, we have a continuation of the same at the beginning. Ye are the salt 
of the earth. You are it. The earth has need of you. You are the salt. The earth is benefited by you. The earth is preserved because of you. Talking about the whole way up as we were coming along. That kind of people, the earth is preserved. Your salty presence on earth is beneficial and needful. Then comes a but. And this is the first negative point in this passage, in this sermon. And the but says, but if the salt has lost his savor, how will the earth be salted? A logical question. How will the earth be preserved if the salt loses its saltiness? How will the earth be better if salt loses its effectiveness? Not only does the earth not benefit, but the salt itself becomes completely useless. (laughs) The Bible actually uses a phrase that we tell each other not to use on anyone. You probably know what it is, don't you? Good for nothing. You should never say anyone they're good for nothing. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ did that. And when he's talking about good for nothing, he's talking about people. Because salt is the it's talking, if the salt has lost its savor, if, if, if people have lost their saltiness, they are good for nothing. They're supposedly Christians, supposedly disciples. But are good for nothing but to be cast out. And he does that using the metaphor of salt. See, Jesus is describing his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth. With him as the king, with, and, and the, the full sermon goes on like from the beginning and it, he goes on to proceed and describe how his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom on earth will function. Here he says, if the salt, if the people of God lose out in their heart and in their life with God, The earth will suffer, and they will be no longer of any value in my kingdom. Hence the good-for-nothing phrase. Now, the root of that Greek word, have lost his savor, is, according to Strong, the root is not the word itself, but the root of that word is morose. Now, it, it actually means dull or stupid or uh, blockhead or absurd. I mean, this words, I'm giving you words that you shouldn't use on other people, okay? <laughs> but that's the definition of morose. And the English word, what English word comes to your mind when you think of this Greek word? Anybody want to venture to guess? Is morose actually a real word? It is, okay. Uh, that's the one. <laughs> a moron is a, a dull or a stupid person or whatever. Somebody is not very bright. So we're not that far from the Greek after all. 
Now, this particular word has lost its savor. It's the Greek word actually, I don't, I probably won't say it, marino, marino, which means to become morose or to become a moron in that sense. You were not either as an individual or as a community, but now you are. You have become. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a word of uh, action, action that way. Now I have another verse. I'm just going to read uh, two verses in Romans, and I want to see, see if you can sniff out this word. It's a different wording, but see if you can sniff out this moraino, this become a moron, a morose word out of this, these two verses. Romans 1, 21 to 22, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So, where do you think that one is? When I venture a guess, yes. Became fools. That I, they became fools is the, the one word. Same word. They used to not be, but now they are. What are they now? Well, they're fools. They're stupid. But I thought, they thought they were wise. In fact, they thought they were becoming wise. In fact, they knew they were changing. They knew they were changing, but they thought they were becoming better, but they were not. And reading on, if you read on in the Romans 1, you will actually see our culture completely in full detail described to us. Exactly down the point. You could have a sermon on that. This morning, I'm going to do something that's similar to what Melvin Lehman did in a message at Shippensburg Bible School this past Sunday, uh, past year, in a Sunday morning he was there. He used salt as a, col- as a collective group, and, and he, he used salt as the culture that the collective people of God create as they walk in God's ways. coming out in very practical ways. So I'm going to do that. Uh, I will not, he's been a teacher for 40 years. He can do a lot, lot better. And I would encourage you, if you want to, listen to the message from Shippensburg. Forget when the Bible school was. April, April's past year. Very, very good message where he gives some practical definition of how to create culture, which I'm not going to do this morning much of. A culture, culture, collected belief and values and attitudes and practices of a family, of a business, of an organization, of a church, a school, an area, and a nation. It's a culture is the collective beliefs and values and attitudes and practices and traditions, and you can expand on that. Culture shock uh, is the pervading attitudes and practices in a specific collection of human beings. And culture shock is when you 
what you experience when you, without proper preparation, you are, from your culture, you are dropped into another culture. And you experience shock, culture shock, they call it, because you don't know what is expected of you, and you don't know what to expect, because the things are very different. And it's strange. And you get confused and disoriented. Because it's a different culture, it's a different value, different beliefs, different practices. Some cultures, this is very impolitical, very politically incorrect. Some cultures are better than other cultures. May I say that here? I'll try to convince you of that. I have a co-worker who works in the office now, used to drive his own owner-operator truck. He was in New York City going down 2nd Avenue at 2 a.m. in the morning, and he got stopped by a policeman. And the policeman came front and said, Driver, are you lost? Said, no, sir. No, officer. I, I am going here. I know this is the address I'm going to. He said, Office, uh, said, driver, do you know it's not safe to be here at this time of the night? Well, no. <laughs> well, you just follow me. I'll take you there. And he followed uh, the officer and took him there. Now, would you like to live in that culture? <laughs> Are some cultures better than others? Uh, I think so. Um, 30 years ago, I had a conversation with a man who serviced our uniforms where I worked. And he was talking about how uh, the differences he services in, in the Lancaster area. I don't know how many areas he served, but he also talked about York and he talked about Harrisburg. Apparently he serviced in all three of those areas. He said it is much easier to do business in the Lancaster area. Up toward Harrisburg, it's much more difficult. He said the people, the uniforms get lost, they get destroyed, they vary. So just, just much more difficult to have, like down in this area, it, you, you, uh, uniforms come in dirty, they wash them, they come back, hang them up, and it's a cycle. But it's not that way in other areas. It's less, much more loss and much more uh, difficulty. Losses are minimal. But other areas, Many people just don't care how things are supposed to function, or worse, they steal or damage clothing on purpose. So it's more difficult to do business there. It's more expensive. It's a different culture. I don't know if it's still the case. It might be. Maybe some of you know this. But if you buy auto insurance with your zip code, one, beginning with one seven, it's cheaper than if you have a zip code of one nine. <laughs> Do you know if that's still true? I don't know. It was true for many, many years. In fact, even our Mennonite Brotherly Aid plan, it was true for uh, a sharing plan. Why is that? One seven, Lancaster and Lebanon, one nine, Berks. And of course, you think of the population centers of Berks, it's a different culture. And so you go across the line from Lebanon to Berks, and you pay more for your car insurance. The 
It's a different culture, and people pay for it. These are sociological examples of salt. Some cultures are better than others. Some are more preserving. Some are more beneficial. Some are more flourishing. Jesus said, "Ye are the salt of the earth." Now, if there are Christians living in the area, would you expect that area to be better or worse? If there's lots of Christians living in the area, would you expect the area to be better or worse uh, culturally? And the ways I described it, would the well-being of everybody improve if there be a large amount of people that actually obey Jesus? I think we could say the answer should be yes. What if there are large numbers of Christians, but the cultural health deteriorates? What does that mean? Would this be an indication of salt, salt losing its savor? Maybe. I would think so. This morning, I want to make us aware or raise awareness of what Jesus is speaking about. The impact that a community of people can have on the world in many different ways. And the loss that is experienced when people lose their saltiness. I was talking to my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, this past week about our ancestors. I don't know what initiated it. But there's recently uh, one of my brother-in-laws, which studies history, uh, got me aware of uh, Barbara Horst. was a widow that came from Switzerland in the early 1700s. Her husband died just before, or maybe even during the trip, we're not sure. She had three sons. And one of the sons moved up in this area. It might be the, the case of the horse in this area that I'm not related to. I don't know. I'm related to them, obviously. But one stayed right where they settled in the Grafdale area. And uh, her son married a granddaughter of Hans Graf, which is the uh, first pioneer of that area. And I grew up on the Hans Graf original land and my uh, where I, where my childhood home was. So... So Barbara's son stayed there, and he's buried at the Grafdale Brick Church. And he had a son that was a minister for 30 years, and is buried at the Grafdale Brick Church. Then there's a gap in between that I haven't studied. I think some people might know. I could find it out. But I also said that my grand, my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather are buried at the Grafdale Frame Church. I said, there's two churches. There's a Grafdale Brick Church and there's a Grafdale Frame Church. Now, why? Why is that? Why is there two churches? Well, there was a split. My ancestors left the main Mennonite church in the late 1800s and started what's called the Old Order Division. That was the beginning of Old Order in the Mennonites. I told her that if they had not, very, very probably, she would be wearing pants and watching TV today. 
Well, actually, I didn't tell her one thing. I, I didn't tell her that she probably wouldn't be <laughs> because she's our ninth child, and large families have disappeared in that environment pretty well completely. So I didn't tell her that. Now, yet from my perspective, especially as a young person, if I would have lived back in that day, I would not have gone with the old orders. I'm quite certain I would not have. Because the, uh, the Mennonite church, it had many issues. It did have many issues. But it did have the things going that I value. They had um, Sunday school, which is teaching the Bible. They had revival meeting. They had conversion. The terminology they used were familiar with us today. They were born again. They taught assurance of salvation. They were more evangelistic. They were more vocal about their faith. And that would have appealed to me. And I think, I think, I don't know, but if I'd have been back there, I'd have probably gone with them. I mean, stayed with them. Now, as I get older, maybe I realize I might not have. (laughs) But as a young person, I would have, I think. But only a small, and I mean a very small minority, avoided a complete enculturation into American societal life. Talk about the mainline, mainline Mennonite church. This does not mean that they haven't done anything good and have done lots of things for the Lord. You know, only heaven will, only eternity will reveal the effect that they have had. But now, is the salt still there? Well, let's let that up for you to decide. Salt can be living out the Beatitudes. But it can also be more generally the culture that is developed, especially Christian culture. And salt losing its savor characterizes mainstream Christianity in America today as a whole. And here's what Melvin, I will quote some of what Melvin said. He can say it better than I can. Mainstream Christianity has lost the culture wars. He said, look at the difference a hundred years it's made from 1900 to 2000. And you can look at lots of areas. He said, go ahead, just look at clothing. And he did this. He said, look at, at 1900, modesty was generally it was a general practice in men and women. By the end of the 1900s, <laughs> and it's no better, basically, in the church. <clears throat> From the beginning of the 20th century to the end, which influenced the other more? Did the church influence the culture Or did the culture influence the church? (laughs) I think we know what the answer is. It's obvious. It's not that mainstream Christianity has changed culture into its direction. It's rather that the culture has changed Christianity into its direction. Christianity has been a big loser in the 20th century. Maybe we thought it doesn't matter, but it does matter. Something I want to get across To us this morning, you are the salt of the earth. 
Just give an example. You young ladies, as you walk in society, you may think you are weird. Now, I don't have to just be young ladies. <laughs> you have no idea the salt you are in that area. You may think, I am so different. Well, praise God. If the salt has not lost its savor, you will be different. The sharper the contrast, the better. Well, there's reason within that. Salt is good. Jesus' vision of the kingdom is people who follow him explicitly in all areas. And he goes on to explain. And I'll go down some of the things that he taught. He taught, and you go down verse um, chapter 5. You will, you will get all these. In areas of honesty, talking about salt now and talking about Jesus' kingdom and how his people live. In areas of honesty, telling the truth. Oaths are not needed because of a completely honest character. In areas of relationships, reconciliation is very important. Don't come and worship God if you are estranged from your brother. Be a peacemaker. Impurity. The entire Me Too movement with all the impurity nuances don't even have a breath of air in the heavenly community on earth. No divorce or in a case of separation, no remarriage. Boy, that would be salty in our culture, would it not? And love. Revenge is given to God and a love response is chosen for enemies. No suing at the law, going to second mile, forgiveness instead of retaliation. And I don't know if you heard this story or not. I, I know I told this story sometimes, but when Rick Hess, when his son was killed in an accident there in front of Agway along 322 some 20 years ago, there were three vehicles involved. There was that flower truck. There was that school van where his son was killed, and there was a truck that ran them in the back. And uh, Rick was there, came there, I guess. Oh, it was too long, I forget. But he was there. And here comes the insurance man from the insurance company of the truck driver, the one that rammed the back end and smashed that van up. All the seats were up to the, to the, to the, almost up to the driver's seat. It looked horrible. And he came there, and he was distressed. He said, this is terrible. This is... And Rick told him, he said, there's not going to be one lawsuit from this accident. And he said, no way. He said, how can you say that? He said, I know everyone involved here, and I can tell you right now, there would not be a lawsuit here. That is salt. That is amazing. And there wasn't. If you have a sizable concentration of people who, however, imper however imperfectly, pursue the teachings of Jesus out of a renewed heart, would you not expect an impact on the greater culture? Would it not be a safer, kinder, more honest, and more pure culture? You would expect that. 
The church is not an escape plan. It's not a ticket to heaven, but it's a recovery project. This is a quote I got. I don't know where I got it, so I can't, I can't actually give you the reference. A preaching of the gospel that calls men and women to accept Jesus as Savior, but does not make it clear that discipleship means commitment to a vision of society radically different from what from that which now controls our public life today, must be condemned as false. In reading the whole of the New Testament, one sees that the church properly understands itself as a people, not a club or a clinic or a show or a service provider, but something more like a nation, a polis. So God's kingdom on earth is a people who enter his kingdom through repentance and the new birth. Then they join a people who have done the same thing. It's a specific people with a specific set of values and practices and tradition. It's a people with a specific kingdom culture. We are a people, the people of God. We are different, and we are supposed to be different. We have a different king, we have different purposes, different values, a different vision, and then we call people into that kingdom. We call them to God and to God's kingdom on earth. See, many Christians look at the greater, at the disorder in society and they see a mission field they see they go into that and you you see a well let me word it this way they they see they look at the disorder in the greater culture and they see it as a mis- ministry opportunity the disorder in culture rather than something to be avoided Talk about the disorder and going into it. It's the old, to be like the world, to win the world thinking. Ken Myers has given a lot of thought about this, and so he has put his thoughts together a little better than I am. So he says many people have assumed that the task of the church is acultural which means not cultural. It has nothing to do with culture or lifestyle or practices. It has, well, what does it have? That our mission is to convey a message about some abstract ideas to individuals detached from any kind of cultural forms or any kind of cultural implication. It's a personal message about a personal savior. And that, the result, as I remember most Dostoevsky's talking years ago, is when you add Jesus to your already professional life. So instead of being a movie star, now you are a Christian movie star. Instead of a Christian, you're, a, you're now a Christian movie star or a Christian politician or a Christian sports player or a Christian musician. Because you added Jesus onto your life. That's one way. When in fact, 
the task of the church is foremost to be a people, to sustain a way of life and a way of belief, and as such, to call others to join that culture. The Great Commission is to make disciples and not converts, to baptize them, bring them into our communities, and teach them to observe all things that Jesus said, I have commanded. So many Christians today have the mistaken idea that we can have a transformative effect on the culture around us by participating fully in the culture's disorder. Naive and careless efforts to pursue cultural transformation for the very best Christian reasons will inevitably backfire with all the lethal possibilities of that metaphor. In the foreign services, it's called going native. It's when an ambassador is sent to a foreign place, and in time, he begins to identify more with the country he's at rather than the country he was sent from as an ambassador. That is called going native. And this, I'm going to say this kindly, because it comes closer home than that, but this is the evangelical church at large has resulted in very little cultural transformation and a great deal of cultural captivity. I, for one, am dead set against that. There is a place, and we need to make ourselves accessible to those outside of our culture and outside of our circles. It's for the cause of Christ and to win the loss. We need to do that. On the other side of corn, coin, I make no apology of being different and expecting that. We ought to be, as Christians, if we want to be salty in our time, in this culture, we are going to be different. Here's a statement. What happens in pop culture soon shows up at church. Is that true? Is that true here? Should it be true here? Well, obviously, not everything is bad. Not everything new is bad. There's lots of new things, and there's new surgeries, and we're looking at your grandson and a surgery. That's fairly new, I suppose, the heart operation that they're planning. There is uh, new technologies. There are new tools. Uh, some of our children like to play some new games. <laughs> there are some things new that are good. Sure. But... And they can be incorporate, incorporated thoughtfully into our lives. But pop culture, music, decoration, clothing, hairstyles, attitudes, attitudes, yeah. I sort of accidentally, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name the college now. <laughs> Out of a conservative college, very conservative Baptist college. And they had a, they were singing a hymn on, uh, you could see it on YouTube. 
And there was a row of young men up front of the stage that were the primary singers, and there was a chorus behind them. And they were standing. I don't know how to describe. Uh, it was something like this. And they were standing with this stance. Oh, like military men or policemen or I don't know what you call it. But I suspect, I do not know, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct. That did not come from the Christian community. Where did it come from? It came from pop culture. It's a stance, an attitude. What happens in pop culture soon shows up at church. Is it wrong? Well, if you want to be salty, it might be. Just a little thing, we may say, maybe so, but join that with others. I guess I'll get practical. How about hair grooming? We vary here. But there is a general identity and practice here, okay? What if someone starts with a different style that's not practiced here? What about that? And you call that pushing the boundaries. But the question I want to ask, well, where is it coming from? Well, some of my friends from outside the church are using it. Okay, well, where is that coming from? Well, some of their friends. But where is it coming from? Pop culture. What happens in pop culture soon shows up at church. Why? Is that participation... Is that participating in the disorder of the dominant culture? Or is it part of building and forming Christ's kingdom? Those things. Is it part of participating in, in, in the disorder of society? Or is it part of building Christ's kingdom? I think it's the former. We can, and sometimes we do, exhibit a mixed message. Mixed messages. We are committed to Christ. We love the Lord. And we love reaching out and care about people. And and we do. Out of love and care. We are careful to be honest and pure and loving. Others looking on can see that. But then they also see us incorporating some of pop culture in various forms in our lives. Our attitudes and our words and our grooming reflect some of the spirit of the world. Not all of it, just some of it. It's a mixed message. It's not no longer pure. It's no longer un, undefiled, unblemished um, Unadulterated, I guess. And sometimes we do that innocently. Sometimes we don't. I think we, in other words, part of the message is to raise the awareness of that. So, this comes from at least some of the thinking expressed above that the real Christian life is what's on the inside coming out, that care and love. That's the real But we are whole people. We are spirit beings and we are body beings also. 
Do I need to remind us what James said in this area? He said, pure religion and undefiled is this, that you visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. You care about people and keep yourself unspotted from the world. The mixed message. What happens in pop culture? She soon shows up at church. Now there was there's one myth that I want to squash. Now I was waiting a long time to squash this myth. <laughs> I think it's appropriate, and I don't think I'll squash this myth in one blow. But some may say, "Are you suggesting that we be like the Pharisees? They were the separated ones. They were." viewed generally as the most holy ones in their community. They kept the most rigid standards and they wouldn't intermingle with the people they considered singles, uh, sinners. They did not generally love people, but they sure were unspotted from the world, from their perspective. Yet they were the most vicious enemies of Jesus. John the Baptist, same thing. He didn't mince any words on them. He called them a brood of snakes. And uh, Jesus said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? So Jesus' most major conflicts were with these powerful conservatives of his day, the Pharisees. He was more accepted by the sinners and the outcasts. And this has gotten some to conclude that forever the main enemies of Jesus are the ones who are separate and conservative. And Jesus is assumed to have not been like that. He fully intermingled with the common people. He fully engaged in the culture without getting himself dirty. Therefore, so should we. We should not necessarily endeavor to establish communities that are separate. Separate. That would be Pharisaical. The Pharisees, they were Jesus' worst enemies, and all who are separate and conservative today are modern-day Pharisees. Is that a myth? <laughs> now, I'm going to say something that can be abused and misused. I mean, not going to say that. that uh, I haven't thought my words through. Not the format, I can't think of the word, but how I'm going to apply that my way of thinking that I'm going to use here can be abused and misused. And I will acknowledge that. And this is it. Times change and bring new challenges. That calls for different actions and responses. Now, you can really run with that one. You see, we mean the Bible times, that in the Bible times, now we have other things here that uh, we can no longer refer. Well, that's, that's going too far. But the point I wanted to make is the battlefront changes. And so let me explain. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees particularly, accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. They had no excuse for such an analysis such an action. They were not speaking out of ignorance. They, they, they full knew well. I think I can say that. 
that they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. You had the signs. You had the prophecies. They were being fulfilled. They saw his works. They heard the clear presentation of the truth that went right down to the heart, that stripped their religion naked. They knew he was the man. But they yet deliberately chose to deny the truth and slander Jesus. So standing before the light of the world, they defiantly closed their eyes and became willfully blind. They rejected their own Messiah, and they were Jesus' primary enemy. And that is why, when you look at the bulk of the Gospels, much of the interaction that Jesus had with was with the Pharisees. So if you, if you take sheer volume, then the Pharisees are the worst enemies of Jesus if you take the sheer volume of Scripture. Just take that. <clears throat> so, and then if we apply that and we take that with a sheer volume of Scripture and we apply it to modern day, we say, okay, the, the, the Pharisees are the worst ones. But times change. You know, it wasn't that long that the Romans were the main enemies of the Christians. And the issue was uh, allegiance to Caesar. Caesar as Lord versus Christ as Lord. And the idea was no longer legalism. Now it was idolatry. And very soon, a lot of heresies began to come into the church. The Gnosticism was one of the first ones, but there were, there were many others. And still later, when the government, the Roman government adopted Christianity as its official religion, the threat to true Christianity changed again. Now the true people of God had to resist and reject a significantly different problem the issue of the merging of church and state and the rise of sacralism. Now, if we only take the examples of Scripture and do not make proper applications as situations change, we will have a distorted view of reality. Since Jesus' main enemies were the Pharisees, we could assume, like I said, that these types of people are our main enemies today. Now, the problem of Phariseeism never disappeared. It's around today. It is, it is, it's here today. But it does not commonly hold the same emphasis and status that Jesus encountered. And Jesus did not, in his earthly ministry, encounter a Christian government. Neither did Jesus encounter a powerful pop media culture as we have today. If we would stay in the same framework as in the time of scripture's writing, we would be unbalanced in the least and dangerously vulnerable and actually deceived at the worst. So Phariseeism and its legalism, its legalistic Christ-rejecting false gospel is still an issue today, but it's only one of many. And it's no law, it's no ways the bulk of our issues today. It really varies in which circle you're at and whether it's more or less. The enemy is the same, but the environment in which he operates changes.
This is my attempt to dispel the myth that the Pharisees are the worst enemies we have today. They're not. <clears throat> Melvin again. Every culture has boundaries. A culture without boundaries is not a culture. Take the boundaries away and there is no culture. He says, I have lost my fear of setting some boundaries. We do it in our family. We do it in our business. And we need to do it in the church. And he goes on now. It doesn't mean we just do whatever we, we just don't make boundaries wherever we feel like doing it. Not that. But rather say there are some things we are going to do and there are some things we are not going to do. Boundaries. Every culture that is healthy has healthy boundaries. The church has an identity. The thinking that all of our identity is in Christ and nothing else. Okay, our, I heard this. I heard it in our circle. Our identity is in Christ only. That's my identity in Christ. That is actually a form of Gnosticism. I think I'm not stepping out on a limb here. But the Gnostics, what they did is they separated body and spirit. And they minimized the importance of the body. They ignored it or devalued it or felt the body was unimportant. What's really important is the spirit. And what really matters is what happens in the spirit realm. And they were super spiritual, the Gnostics were. They supposedly had better insights that others didn't have that were still wallowing in real life. Well, we are a whole people, so we do belong to God. But we also belong to a church, to a people. And our identity is being a child of God. But our identity is also being a part of a local body with local characteristics and beliefs and values and traditions and practices. And they are worth something also. Don't be a Gnostic and just run over the practical physical, common things of life. The testimony of a reporter down south that was observing a group of plain young people rebuilding in a community damaged by a tornado. He gave a, a report. I do have no idea who these people are. And I cannot vouch for their character, their Christian character. I can't do that. But this is his analysis, that these young people displayed a refreshing innocence, a calm demeanor uncluttered by a perplexing news cycle or a junk food diet of pop culture. The observation of a secular, I don't know whether it's a Christian or not, a reporter that could see a difference in those young people because not, not, well, I don't know. See, and I have to be careful here because we're looking at our identity is in Christ, but also our identity is with the people. So it would be better if, um, if he would see the identity of Christ in them, and maybe he did. 
but he saw clearly an identity with a group of people who followed or put to practices the teachings of Jesus. And he saw that. So, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, how will the earth be salted? It begins with a true and complete commitment to Jesus as Lord and King. To be a salt, it begins with a true, complete commitment to the Lord as King. We are a child of the King. There's the other place in the Gospels where you're talked about the salt of the earth. It's in Luke, and I didn't write the reference down, so I can't quote the chapter. But before he talked about you, uh, about you being salt, he talks about if you're not willing to forsake everything to be my disciple, you, uh, everything you cannot be my disciple. And then he goes into the salt um, illustration. So, you are the salt of the earth. It begins with that true, complete commitment to Jesus as Lord and King. It progresses with learning to be a disciple of Jesus, along with and under the direction of other disciples, disciples of Jesus. It matures with a full, consistent, and godly culture that reflects the spirit and teachings of Jesus in normal, everyday practices. This results in norms and traditions and practices that are valued and not resisted. The effect is that the earth is salted. It is better because there are collections of people living there that have an impact that extends even into the general society. Law-abiding citizens that pray for their leaders, people who care for the less fortunate, and witness to others of the salvation of God, and that do not feed on the disorder that produces pop culture. They do not feed the disorder that produces pop culture, nor do they feed on it. They don't feed it, nor do they feed on it. So, Jesus said, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And the reason I brought that verse out is because a city is not an individual. A city is a collection of people. A city on a hill, the people of God, collectively, are like the light. Now, it is individuals. It is individual. But it comes together collectively. Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before, that, before men that they may see your good works. And then glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Salt the earth. Glorify the Father. That's our calling. Let's go and do it. Can we, if you could, can you kneel for prayer? Again, Lord, we do come before you. And we do pray, Lord, for your presence and your spirit to speak to each one of us in our hearts. Lord, as we have looked at your scripture, as we have meditated upon it, as we recognize the 
both the enormity of the responsibility and the blessing that we can in participating at this. Lord, our our hearts are both awed and and um, struck back, Lord, in the sense of the greatness of it. We have a privilege and we have a duty. So I pray, Lord, we as a, at Oasis Christian Fellowship, that you would be with us. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us, direct us, make us to be salty, salt on the earth, in our hearts, in our spirits, and in our lives, in our practices, individually, as families, and collectively as a church. Lord, we are. It is your purpose that we have an impact. And I know, Lord, in very various ways we have impact in our community, Lord. I pray, Lord, you make us salty, saltier, and help us to recognize where we may be losing out, both in our own lives and also collectively. And I pray, Lord, you would guide us, give us, as with open hearts, give us your direction. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.